We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Skosha Monkovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders In Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of disaster management and creative sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. Today, from the epicentre of the Northern River's flood recovery, we are joined by Ali Bird and Katie Cooper-Wares. Along with the Black Summer bushfires, the Northern River's flood disaster from earlier this year has marked the necessity for a massive shift in the way we approach disaster planning in this country. Both Ali and Katie have been instrumental in the founding and ongoing development of the Resilient Lismore Community Recovery Organisation, along with many other roles working in the space of government, community and the arts. Ali is councillor for Lismore City Council and chair of Arts Northern Rivers. And Katie as a dancer, artist, storyteller and also founder of the Creative First Aid Alliance Group. In this conversation, we discuss new approaches to community preparedness, how the arts can support in reimagining the future after such an immense loss of safety and identity. And Ali and Katie share their on-ground learnings from living with the realities of compounding disasters in their community. Enjoy my conversation with Ali Bird and Katie Cooper-Wares. Hello, Ali and Katie. Welcome to Creative Responders. I'm joining you today from Waradjurung and Jajawarung country. I'm down in Ballarat in Victoria. Very overcast. Where are you joining us from, Katie? Uh, I'm on Yagel country. Um, it's blue sky, blue sky day here. A bit windy, but I've just, uh, I just went for a quick walk on the beach to try and reset uh, in between meetings. So, But um, yeah, it's beautiful. And you, Ellie? I'm joining you today from Widjibul Waibul country um, in the heart of the Bundjalung Nation. And it's definitely spring. Spring is springing all over the place. So it's blue sky, sunshiny, there's a nice breeze. And, yeah, we're starting to heat up a bit, which is nice after many months of cold weather. I'm very grateful for your time today. I know that you're both in... um a big journey of lived experience of disasters in your community and both embody the ideas of the community-centred uh, recovery in action that we talk about so much. So thank you for joining me today to share your stories and especially when I know you're still very much in the midst of the process down there. Um, Ali, I might start with you. You're, you're the Executive Director of Resilient Lismore and, Katie, I know you were instrumental in founding the organisation and have been involved in many ways over these past years. But for listeners who may not already know um, Resilient Lismore, uh, it's a community-led recovery organisation that was originally established at Lismore Helping Hands to support the March 2017 flood recovery. But as we all know, you have continued to experience significant disaster impacts since that time, and especially with the devastating floods from earlier this year. Could you, Ali, maybe tell us a bit about how the group initially came about and some of the ways it's grown or evolved since then into its current form that you're leading? Yep, as you um, recognised there. So Resilient Lismore had its genesis in a community um, 
initiative called Lismore Helping Hands that started as a social media response to the floods in 2017 um, by Katie Cooper-Wares there on the call with us and a couple of other brilliant women, Mandy Kai and Maddie Braddon amongst others. And so in 2017 it started as a social media response but um, reasonably quickly we discovered that we needed to move to an on-ground organising response and so we delivered about three weeks out of the South Lismore train station coordinating volunteers and coordinating all sorts of offers of help and donations. Um, People who work in disasters are very familiar with that uh, community response that happens, the outpouring of love in the form of goods, and so we managed that. In between 2017 and now, we maintained the Facebook group and it slowly and steadily grew. We used that group as a community um, community learning space, really, where we talked about disasters, we talked about preparedness. We used it to amplify official emergency warnings in subsequent flooding events uh, it was very util- well utilised during the bushfires in 2019-20 um, as a place where people were communicating and talking about what was happening. And then, of course, 28th of February kicked off in the Northern Rivers and the group grew very rapidly. We started with about 7,500 members then and the group now has 32,000 and is still sort of steadily increasing We also saw a return to on-ground organising. So Resilient Lismore now, seven and a half months on from the 28th of February event, operates uh, as an organisation. We have transitioned to now we have seven part-time staff and a team of around 50 regular volunteers and we deliver uh, community rebuild support really for residents of Lismore and Uh, outlying communities as well. And so we're very much in that um, space of coordinating volunteers to help people rebuild their lives. Mm, Massive endeavour and a lot of history and experience backed up behind all that. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes I say to people that uh, the reason that Resilient Lismore has been so successful this time is because we went through that experience in 2017 and we um, had done our training round pretty much. So we we knew what was coming, we knew what to expect and whilst this event was exponentially larger, the foundational elements of it um, we knew and understood so we were able to position ourselves to support our community. An interesting feeds into that broader conversation that's happening nationally around kind of in great investment into preparedness in terms of their skills and training. And we'll talk a bit more about that later because I know you have lots to say about that, um, Ali. But um, Katie, as part of the process um, that you're involved in and also through um, the earlier work of the 2017 flood, there's a lot of activation and, and energised movement from the creative sector in the region you're a dancer, an artist, a storyteller, and have been quite instrumental in the establishment of what is being uh, named now the Creative First Aid Alliance, um, which we have been connecting in with you through. And can you tell us a bit about the process of setting up this alliance and why it's been important for you to create this 
collaboration across the sector and uh, how you see it working within the bigger picture of things like Resilient Lismore. I guess, you know, having had that experience from 2017 and, um, and being able to learn off people like Ellie and other leaders like in our community, um, I know a good thing that we, that we do at Resilient Lismore is that we, we identify like where the gaps are and keep checking back, you know, it's like where, where are the gaps and where can we help fill? Um, and so for me, um, a gap that I really saw was that our arts organisations and artists, creatives, just weren't really connecting um, with each other for, for lots of reasons. I mean, we're in a, you know, post-COVID kind of uh, time as well. So we've, we've been really isolated from each other um, and... You know, I guess personally I know how much uh, the arts offers, um, you know, myself and my family in times of, of need and I knew what it could offer our community. I just felt that that's a role that I could play is to bring people together and link them to their resources. So, you know, at the moment we've got um, arts organisations and artists, um, art therapists, uh, youth, you know, youth organisations and we come together and we support each other on the projects. So we brainstorm the creative recovery projects that we want to get out into community um, and ways that we can do that um, in, in create safe spaces and trauma-informed practices. Um, yeah, and, I mean, it, it, it's evolving um uh, we keep checking back in and, and seeing where the gaps gaps are it's early days isn't it I mean we can say it's seven and a half months but it's still very very early days and I think what I'm hearing in the, that alliance group is what is always talked about but isn't necessarily filled as a gap is the kind of peer-to-peer relationship support but also a capacity to be able to build skills whilst we're still in action and I mean that's a really hard thing people are very overwhelmed and understanding they need to be um, doing but at the same time the skill gap between your empathetic response and your capacity to do something sometimes is uh, a problematic area where there's potential to do harm if it's not done um, effectively or is not connected into other services and support and Mm. I think in recovery space, that idea of collaboration, you know, the national principles of disaster recovery talk about communication and, and uh, collaboration being core principles of good recovery. And, you know, this alliance to me really feels a great support need to be able to do that better and to be able to do, the, therefore, the development of responses more effectually. Yeah, especially for the long term, um, like, you know, it, when I reflect back on um, when we were hit with the first huge flood event, uh, I think it was probably like two weeks later, um, you know, I had a bunch of artists and, and everyone was in kind of that real um, that response that they were really hyped up and they're like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then the energy kind of level just really drops and so it's just so important that we're checking in with each other about self-care and that and and that we're doing things with best practice for our community like keep checking back to like why why are we doing it you know what it's um yeah super important yeah I think it's interesting maybe we can talk a bit about that idea of the 
energy and depletion of energy, which is a real key thing. And I think in um, current environments that we're living in, this idea of compounding impacts um, is kind of a generic conversation, but there's not necessarily much put into place to see how we manage that in the future. And I know you're sitting there with this next rain event hanging off the coast there uh, with you know, the potentiality of it being quite uh, instrumental, like how do we manage our energies and how do we manage our volunteers and how do we manage ourselves to create flow around the ongoing impacts rather than seeing things as singular events, which is so much how the structure of disaster management has been framed. I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts about that, given that you're living that and you're living that challenge. How do you see your two organisations or your collective organisations responding to that? I think that it's very important that uh, governments in particular reframe their thinking around preparedness and around disaster preparedness and really lean into a community development approach, uh, which is why I think creative recovery in particular is really important. Um, There needs to be a a shift to an understanding that if we build networks and build community connections and build relational trust within communities, then that inherently makes us better prepared for if and when disasters happen. So, you know, as well as just going around Lismore, for example, and saying, do you all have your flood plan? I think there needs to be a really strong focus and that focus being matched by funding and uh, that community development projects are prioritised so that we improve community wellbeing, we improve community connectivity and then in doing so we build our community resilience and our ability to respond to whatever challenge comes next Um, Now, that's not saying it's going to be easy and we definitely are living in a time of compounding uh, events. So for us here in the Northern Rivers, yeah, it was floods followed by fires, followed by COVID, followed by more floods, followed by still more floods and the event that we're living through now. So I just think it's really important that we reframe our approach to preparedness away from just the practical nuts and bolts of it to how do we prepare a community to support and nurture each other as we move through these trying times. So uh, we need to, yes, definitely focus on practical emergency management planning, but we also need to focus on community building initiatives where we build communities of trust and support. Yeah, and I think that's a really uh, beautiful reflection to what you're doing, Katie, with the Alliance in that many of the people who are coming to join that Alliance or feeding into the Alliance are people who have long history of relationships with your local communities who are running programs ongoingly that have that relationship of trust that can be built on in terms of um, times of challenge or, you know, stress that we are dealing with now so that you've got a baseline of safety and comfort within the within the people and the processes that people are using. Like how how is that conversation happening within the Alliance currently? I guess because we have such a, um, a broad range of, of artists and, and that are working on different kinds of projects, um, 
you know, there's there there's offerings and and space and responses that are about connecting and comforting and offering spaces or experiences to to grieve or process, you know. But then there's also offerings that are just purely joyful fun and and anything that's not flood and I think that having that big spectrum is kind of it's just it's just like all the interconnecting pieces of of what makes a person and what makes a community and what makes someone resilient what makes someone strong it's it's kind of like I'm not going to say it's all we can do but it's it's like because we're living in such uncertain times the healthier and, and the more whole that we can kind of create our help hold space for for our um, community members. It's kind of like that's going to be that's going to be the foundation. That's true, isn't it? If we don't, it's not just uh, another thing. It's a vital thing to remember what it is to be human and why we are connecting and why we need to be supporting each other. And again, a beautiful gift that the creative engagement processes offer this way of reimagining uh, ourselves together collectively uh, and with a sense of delicate care. Or yeah, it's kind of like yeah, that reimagining how. Why, why do we want to get through? How do we get through this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, just it's tricky. There's so many unknowns. But Yeah, I'm interested in, uh, you know, these different networks and groups form and they have a kind of action and a purpose at a local level in terms of addressing immediate needs and long-term needs. And, again, the long-term is, as you say, Ali, the really vital key that often gets dropped off. And I'm just wondering how you're thinking about using or how the networks that you are working in are thinking about escalating that conversation because, again, at a local level level and your engagement with local council, and, Ali, I understand you work with the Lismore City Council as a councillor, how do we use these networks or these um, platforms to be able to raise these concerns and these conversations that we're having to be able to educate people about the vital need for investment in community development programs or investment in cultural programs? Uh, and how do you think we might be able to do that better? Because it's not that there is a push not to do. I just think it's that people aren't necessarily uh, educated to understand the connection or the value or the propositions that groups like the Creative First Aid Alliance are putting forward. Yeah, I think that we need to keep advocating and, uh, you know, as I was listening to you ask the question, all that comes to my mind is that... um, we need to elevate the importance of well-being. So I think often in disaster recovery, there's a focus on restoration of infrastructure and there's a focus on restoration of roads. And there's in this particular event, obviously, there's schools, there's um, sewage treatment plants, there's public buildings, there's all manner of infrastructure and um, hard restoration that needs to be done. But Uh, For me, I think we need to ensure that the conversation is always focused and anchored around well-being and what is it that enhances well-being and what is it that creates community well-being and what is it that brings a community back together. And that's where the role of the arts is so important and that's where community networks and community connectivity is so important because sometimes 
um, I often reflect on that, you know, no individual is an island. We are social creatures and so we need to emphasise and prioritise the spaces and places that we can come together and be together and live through this together. And I guess that's just our challenge as recovery practitioners is to make sure that that is always part of the conversation, that we don't just revert to, well, let's rebuild that building and rebuild that road and therefore that community will feel better. It's like, well, but uh, what is it that's going to increase the well-being of that community as they do things together in that building uh, and to ensure that that's really high on the agenda of the people that are making decisions about recovery moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting you. I mean, I think that's a vital part and I know we've talked about this, Katie, in terms of having alternative voices on those decision-making panels and mm. I understand that particularly across Northern Rivers there's kind of uh, different processes that have been putting into place to, to make planning happening but maybe one of the key avenues is about ensuring that we all support um, places for alternative voices on those platforms and that's not necessarily always easy but mm. it's a very big part of our activism in terms of representing our communities mm. um, what are your thoughts about that Katie? Yeah so that you know that, that's that's another gap that we identified that that there isn't you know anyone really advocating for to make sure that there's artistic representation and um, at those levels and, and as people make those decisions like we live this area is just so rich with artists. It's like, you know, and I know that uh, you look at statistics, like even economically and um, that it brings to the area. So I guess it's finding a way, <laughs> it's finding a way to speak, speak, uh, speak the language, you know, to make sure that, um, that it's, it's seen as important, that it's viewed as important and it's not just, you know, so when you say speak the language, you mean kind of adopt a language that's used within those um, kind of more practical processes of decision-making to translate our language, the language of the creators, into a language that's yeah, being heard. Which is so, which those. is so tricky. I mean, you mm. know, I sit here and I stumble over the language because I'm, you know, I, I'm a dancer. <laughs> but it is, it, it's, a, it's a learning process um, and I think that that's, that's that's a huge thing that the Creative Recovery Network um, is offering us. Like, I mean, I've 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 already learnt so much. I know enough about systems, you know, and bureaucratic systems to know that they they don't they fail people. Uh, but I also know that you have to learn how to work within the system, and then kind of gently push to get your voice heard within that. Um, so that's it's yeah. Look, I'm learning. We're all learning. Uh, but if we don't actually like, you know, advocate for it and speak up for it, I I, I don't know what recovery would look like without the arts. Without <laughs> it's just like especially for our area, like for our area, that's our that's the richness of of this place. Um, mm. It's the color. You know, we're called the rainbow. We're the rainbow region. We're we're all diverse and and wacky and and creative and and I think that's I think that's a you know a lot. There's a huge amount of creatives that I know that have been involved like in the um, recovery process. Um, 
I think I, I read somewhere, Ellie, you might you might have read that too, but it was like, you know, someone wrote, imagine if they put like all the, the event planners um, uh, in charge of, <laughs> imagine, imagine if they did, Ellie. <laughs> well, it's a um, directly relatable skill. Um, yeah, I, I fully, fully support the transition of events management um, expertise into disaster recovery. And I would actually say to anyone in any community listening, if you want to start thinking about planning for your community, find your organisers, find your people that put on events, find the people that know how to bring people together to have parties because those are the people that you're going to need to call on if and when um, a disaster comes to your community. But I just um, just want to reflect on this community engagement aspect because I think that one of the challenges in the Northern Rivers, and I know we're talking about the inclusion of artistic voices on those processes, but at the moment there is actually no mechanism for the inclusion of community mm-hmm. voices at all. So at the moment the recovery is very driven by bureaucrats, is very driven by agencies, is very driven by um, formal government organisations and there are no community advisory groups, there is no um, community participation, they're shaping up what their community engagement is going to look like going forward. And so more generally we have an advocacy mm. piece to be done about listening, respecting and engaging to all of the mm. varied voices in our community in that process and for that in community engagement not to be one way. Um, and so that's that's the piece of advocacy that I'm really focused on at the moment is, okay, as the Northern Rivers Reconstruction stands up, Reconstruction Corporation stands up, what is your community engagement framework? How are you going to have those community conversations? And um, it won't work if it's one way. It won't work if it's the corporation saying this is what we're going to do in your community and you just need to stand by and let it happen or you know, participate in this survey or send us an email, like that is not inclusive and appropriate community engagement. And so we really need to be pushing for community engagement that is meaningful and that gives everyone a pathway into that process where they can feel heard and acknowledged. Uh, The arts definitely fundamentally and creative practitioners and creative thinkers and dreamers and visionaries have to be included in that process and respected, but we need to start by actually having engagement processes full yeah, stop. It's kind of, and um, I'm really worried that they're not yeah. going to shape them up in a meaningful way. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that's 2022 and we're still having to advocate on that, that behalf, but it does seem to be an argument that's lagging yeah. behind um, the thinking and the strategies that surround the disaster management sector, which is all about community engagement and linkage, etc. Um, so in that case, do you think, Ali and Katie, what, what other supports from outside of your communities would help you in that advocacy role? Because it's, that's a very wearing one also and one that isn't um, very giving, really. So, you know, if we're thinking about um, sitting in this, in this space and uh, what sort of outside support would be helpful? I've reflected on this a little bit and I often try to sort of lift myself out of um, out of the situation so you know, if it was another community that this had happened to, what would be the thing that I would really encourage outside um, outside organisations or individuals to offer as support? And for me, I think a lot of it um, 
well, a big, a piece of it is around governance. So I think that um, communities often get worn down by the um, holding of meetings or putting together agendas or having to do minutes or then having to do action notes and um, having the right incorporated bodies in place to be able to leverage the grant assistance that's about to come. And I feel like that sort of practical support could be really useful for disaster impacted communities. So rather than, I know I said I wasn't putting myself in the picture, but rather than me having to shop around and organise, or Katie having to organise 20 people to attend a meeting on a particular day and manage everyone's competing diaries, perhaps that's something that could be offered by an outside group who could say, look, we want to support you to do the work that you need to do to have the conversations you need to have. And one thing we can do from an external perspective is help you to get that organising in place so that you don't have to do that heavy lifting. Um, Because that takes a lot of time and energy to just get people in the one room to have the conversation. And there's also some rapid learning that needs to be done around around governance and um, grant writing. I mean, we're all, if we've been to any disaster recovery um, discussions lately, it's always raised by community groups, just the onerous um, burden of having to put in all of these grant applications, some of them quite lengthy and detailed with a lot of work involved um, to try and access some of that recovery money. Whereas if some of that money was able to flow quicker and faster with less hoops to jump through, then that would be a massive support for communities as well, just to get in and do the work that we all want to do. Mm, Yeah, I totally agree. We had a creative first aid meeting this morning and we just, it was, it was, yeah, got on the subject of grants and it's just like everyone is just exhausted. You know, it's just to even, to even start. It's just, uh, I mean, a lot of creatives, we struggle with grant writing like to start with, but um, but there's so many amazing ideas out there of things that we could offer our community and ways that we could work with our community. But yeah, so yeah, grant writers, send them all. <laughs> send them all here. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's like it's like the bigger bigger picture of how we understand preparedness, and in again getting to that relational sensibility. Like, in order to hand over projects beyond your kind of network of um, peers is about building trusting relationships with organisations or networks that sit outside. You know, you've got your immediates that would be bearing impact themselves and then the next room and the next room and how do we start to think in a projected sense, like who who is in our third ring that we know we have a direct relationship with or we need mm-hmm. to build a relationship with when the time hits that we that they can pick up and the expectation is there and they're very happy to play that role. It's a kind of broader relational process, isn't it, in terms of how we think about ourselves sitting in our local region, our regional region and our state region and then our national region. And I actually think that's been one of the successes for Resilient Lismore this time because we had those relationships with some of those external organisations and agencies. I mean, I remember even in those first few days I was on the phone to... Um, people that I already had relationships with in the Red Cross, for example, who are going, right, Ellie, yep, we know you, we can pick up the phone and we can start to talk about how we're going to support you and what we might be able to bring rather than having to find the community leaders or find the community initiatives to be able to tap into. So one of our 
advocacy points is the need for place-based community-led organisations with core funding. And I'll very um, unashamedly wave the flag of Resilient Lismore here, but communities need organisations that are focused on resilience and able to um, respond if and when a disaster happens. And they need to be locally led place-based organisations that are then ready to leverage those outer rings of support and um, that can come into a community. And the the other benefit of that is that by having a place-based organisation, we then have those internal community relationships and understand the network of organisations and individuals. So we are able to channel those external offers of help and try to connect them with the people that are going to be able to leverage them. But without an organisation or, and I do think it needs to be an organisation and in some communities those are neighbourhood centres, for example, um, that place-based, locally-led organisational resourcing and um, resilience building needs to be a key focus um, for future funding and future preparedness for the disasters that we know are going to keep increasing in scale. Yeah, it's a long-term view, isn't it, having a lens mm. down the seven generations that, rather than the three years. So your your communities, you know, in some ways so the Northern Rivers is way beyond just Lismore, but a lot of the media focus, et cetera, has focused on that town as a kind of core representative and perhaps as many on the outskirts of that are feeling... Um, left behind but are part of a bigger picture of recovery that's a kind of massive responsibility across seven shires and many, many people impacted in a raft of different ways. And so um, how do you look at, I mean, your work in Resident Lismore is very specific to Lismore and Katie, your alliance is trying to capture that whole region and trying to ensure that gaps are filled in whatever way that the collective group can do so and to keep remembering these smaller communities that are equally building their recovery journeys how do you how do you see um the process of connecting and interconnection because it's a huge challenge isn't it particularly when you've got the external pressures of media that are shrinking it down to one particular identity rather than a collective one Well, for starters, I'd say that we are called Resilient Lismore, but that doesn't mean that our work is geographically constrained to Lismore itself. Um, When we kicked off, we launched our floodhelpnr.com.au website for the Northern Rivers because uh, our experience from previous events was that we would be supporting some of those other communities. Now, the scale of this event meant that it wasn't like 2017. In 2017, we were sending food supplies and resources to Korokai, for instance, and really supporting that community. So given that Lismore is the epicentre and the scale has been so significant here, we have been a bit constrained with capacity, but we are supporting people in Wardell. We are working with people in Korokai. We're sending people out to Bungawalburn. So our work is not constrained only to the geographical limits of Lismore. Um, So there's that. But the other real need that there is in the Northern Rivers is to build regional connectivity as well or to improve regional connectivity and to make sure that communities are networked together and that we're able to work alongside each other as we move forward 
There are a number of recovery programs that are very close to launching that will be doing that exact sort of work. So they'll be travelling um, out to some of those outlying communities and ensuring that they're as connected as they can be. Um, but it's really challenging and, yeah, and, you know, what's happened to us in the Northern Rivers isn't a Lismore-specific thing. There are people right across a very large area of land who've been heavily impacted. I think that's what makes this um, disaster so significant. Uh, it's an entire region that has um, been forced to have a little existential look at who we are and and what it is that it means to live on the northern rivers. If something like this can happen to us, it's incredibly challenging on so many levels and how do we bring people along? But I guess I would just loop back to our need to focus on community development, our need to focus on um, resourcing and supporting community leaders or community networks that establish within those individual communities and then ensuring that they're all talking to each other and connecting in to um, the greater recovery framework. So we're slowly, slowly getting there, like um, making more and more connections. Uh, we've got um, different organisations um, like Seed Arts that are going out to um, primary schools, you know, um, in outlying areas and we make sure that we're linked up with the Northern Rivers Community Healing Hub, which are starting to do outreach programs as well. Um, so we'll be able to offer creative first aid um, along with that. But there is that feeling out there that that these smaller communities have been left behind in the conversation. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll keep at it. We'll keep at it. I think it's like it's like you have to get out there and just talk to people. Like, I mean, if I had more hours in my day, I would just go to every market and every community hall and every CWA and just chat and make those connections because it's, it's time. It's just, it just takes time. Time to sit and listen. It's the dairy process, isn't it? Like, and how yeah. do we, you know, then how do we share the load of the listening so that the information can be fed up and that's the power of those networks. Yeah. It's yeah. like a lots of cups See, of tea or something need yeah. to be <laughs> seems to be had. <laughs> Your communities have experienced such immense impact that's involved this loss of identity and loss of sense of safety. What do you think in the next little period of time and certainly going into the potentiality of a new event um, that you would see some ways the arts could support reimagining that sense of place or reimagining safety and um, a sense of future because there will have to be some quite radical changes in terms of infrastructure and places to live as well as um, a reframing of how you see your identity with these shift shifted mm. towns or shifted spaces. I guess as it, it, you know, I could have this like multiple answers to that, it's, but it's very hard to give one definite answer because it's nothing. We we just don't know what we just don't <laughs> we just don't know, do we, Ellie? But like, um, I guess, I guess you know, with this summer, with this the Lenina event like coming up. Um, uh, Anything that 
yeah. we can do to calm the nervous system, <laughs> um, anything that we can do to um, have a break, have a, you know, have some respite from any creative recovery project that we can get out there that just offers some peace. I think that there's also some opportunities for the creative arts to have a real role if we go back to the community engagement piece. So I think that we should really be building in creative processes and practitioners to community engagement, community conversations. I think one of the things that I love when I see effective creative recovery projects is the opportunity for people to uh, capture their story or their thinking in creative ways. So be that storytelling, be that um, visual representation of community meetings, for example, be that, you know, places to go and tie your visions for the future for the community onto a particular installation or art piece. I think there are so many opportunities to use creative um methodologies to help people create some meaning about what it is that they've been through and where they want to go. One of the big challenges with our recovery at the moment is that we're in limbo. There's no um, information or direction or solid um, planning being shared with the community about where we're going. So that's that's really challenging, but hopefully... Um, Maybe even before that happens, the arts could have a role to play about helping people to reimagine um, who we are, where we are and where we might want to go together. And and that's a role that I can really see that the creative arts could play a really strong, strong role in. Mm, a beautiful offer and a great um, courageous um, adventure <laughs> for us all to jump yeah. into. Well, thank you both for sharing so generously with us today and I know it's... Uh, big busy lives that you both carry in um, partnership with your community so wish you all the best I look forward to working with you over the next months and years supporting where we can and um, where can our listeners connect with you if they like to learn more about or to offer some support for the work that you're doing uh, well you can find Resilient Lismore on Instagram on Facebook we have the Resilient Lismore Facebook group our website is www.floodhelpnr.com.au. Um, we're busy, but we are up for all sorts of partnership and collaboration and we welcome and invite anyone at all to get in touch with us. We'll be at this for a number of years. So, yeah, touch base and let's see what yeah, we can do. And you can um, look up creativefirstaid.com.au and check out some of the projects and artists out there working in our communities. Thank you so much, Katie and Ali, and enjoy your uh, summer ahead at the spring and the uh, beautiful colours and blue sky. Thank you. Thanks, Grisha. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation and a special thanks to Ali and Katie for joining us. We will include those links in our show notes if you'd like to connect in with the great work they're doing. If you'd like to access episode transcripts and research links related to the podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au where you can find all our past episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. 
We'll be back next month with another conversation. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.